KBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's good to have all of you with us today for uh, Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Once again, I say this at the start of virtually every show, we have a lot to talk about. Well, it's true. We do have a lot to talk about. Uh, As most of you know by now, President Trump is in Atlanta. He's uh, speaking right now at the uh, national conference uh, looking at uh, drug abuse, opioid abuse. And uh, Robert Jimison, our producer, is uh, down there. And a little bit later, we'll uh, try to bring him uh, in by remote from the hotel to tell us a little bit about what he heard from the president and the crowd around him. Um, But we'll do that a little later in the show. Meanwhile, uh, we uh, have with us State Senator Jen Jordan, represents Democratic uh, senator from primarily Atlanta, the northern swatch. I always uh, struggle a little to describe exactly what your district takes in. Yeah, so it's shaped like a kidney bean. Half of it is in Cobb County, goes up to Marietta, Smyrna Vidings, crosses the line. And then I've got city of Atlanta, parts of Buckhead proper, Chastain Park, and goes all the way up to Sandy Springs. Okay, well, we're glad you're here. Sam Olins is with Sam Marietta, are you in Senator Jordan's district? I candidly don't know. Okay. It's, it's either uh, your district or Mike Ratz. Yeah, I think probably not, because once you get up to the square, it's like we go right up. Oh, but okay. we would welcome you. Okay, but so it's clear. I moved a <laughs> week ago, Bill. It's not Yeah, no, I, no, I, I understand. <laughs> you're, you, we know you're a good citizen. You usually know who represents you. I just thought, while if it was true that she sure. represents you, you might have some issues. You know, a road that needs uh, looking at. Um, that would be county. Maybe internet. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's Sam Mullins. He is, of course, the former... Attorney General of the state of Georgia. He was Cobb County Commission Chair for a very long time and um, now is at the world's largest law firm, Denton's. Thanks for coming in, Sam. My pleasure. Um, Let's start. I just want to briefly mention, uh, I don't want to talk too much about the national aspect of the uh, drug crisis because um, we will do better, I think, focusing on state and local issues. But let's just start by saying that last fall, the president and both the Senate, uh, at both, both the Democrats and the Republicans in the House and Senate were able to come together in one of the few bipartisan efforts to pass what was described at the time as a major effort to deal with the opioid crisis. There's a couple of things, Sam, that came out of this. One of them is Rob Portman, the uh, Republican from Ohio, he uh, introduced and passed something that he believed was crucial, and that's a law that will require the U.S. Postal Service to screen packages for fentanyl that shipped from overseas. Um, And that was important, Sam, because uh, synthetic opioids are very hard to detect. So Portman was really excited that that was included in the bill and does have the potential to have some positive effect. Well, fentanyl is responsible for most of the overdoses. And there's another drug called carfentanil, which is 100 times stronger than fentanyl. And in fact, at the GBI uh, crime lab, everyone now needs to be uh, in a sealed clothing or else just the smell from a little tiny bit could kill them on sight. Wow. All right. So Portman passed that part of it. The other aspect of the bill is they made a change to a, a an old ruling This is an odd ruling, Jen. It prohibited Medicaid from covering patients with substance abuse disorders uh, if they were receiving treatment in a mental health facility with more than 16 beds. Now the the new law says that you can get 30 days of residential treatment coverage. So that was another big aspect. But the most important thing, Jen, is this was an $8 billion measure but the funding is only for the next fiscal year. So the concerns are, what kind of ongoing funding is there going to be for dealing with the opioid crisis nationwide, right? Right. And I think the problem is, is that while 
we have some talk in the ether a little bit about this being a public health crisis. And I think anybody on the front lines realizes that we really haven't kind of put our money where our mouth is um, in terms of battling this like we should be. I mean, we're surpassing deaths in terms of the HIV AIDS crisis in this country. And um, and we're not putting anywhere near the resources that we need um, to put toward it. And, and I think what we're seeing is a spike in the deaths because of that. So they actually went down the past year a little bit. There was a huge spike before last year. But I think a lot of that's frankly just due to public education and uh, the local resources doing a better job. I, I think one of the concerns I have with this whole discussion is this is an area, candidly, that probably is best handled on the local level rather than the national level. It's really important for the district attorney to understand that uh, drug abuse isn't a felony, it's a disease. Right. And that we need to treat it. And the answer isn't jail. The answer is centers around one's community when they can, where they can get the appropriate care. Now, clearly funding is essential, but just not putting these folks in the first place in a jail is a nice first start. No, absolutely. I think what we've seen specifically, I know in Fulton County, I mean, we've been housing so many people with mental health issues and drug issues for so long as opposed to treating them. I mean, part of um, former Governor Deal's justice, you know, criminal justice reform was about the accountability court to try to deal with this, understanding that folks that were locked up who had addiction issues really should be treated for the addiction issues and not, you know, made to be criminals because that they because they just weren't. Well, we have a great story that broke just today. The AJC published it. It was a front-page story uh, that relates to all this. Dan Flynn, the chief of police in Marietta, um, announced that he is withdrawing his department, the Marietta Police Department, from the Cobb County Drug Task Force. They've been part of it for 40 years plus. Sam, you would know that. And the reason that Flynn gives for this is he wants to focus more on drug prevention and intervention efforts, which is precisely what you two are talking about right now. And and there does seem to be, Jen, a shift in focus among some law enforcement agencies toward working on intervention and prevention programs. Right. And and it was kind of like what Sam was talking about. It's really a local issue and trying to deal with the local kind of in a very local way. You know, how is it affecting your population? I mean, Cobb County has one of the highest death rates from opioids in the state. I mean, it is an absolute crisis out there. And what's interesting is that the people with the highest rate of um, death from overdose tend to be men 50 to 60 years old. So it's starting to touch so many people we know in in unconventional ways that I think it's making people rethink exactly what this is about. Sam, you were spent six years as attorney general, basically, right? Is that about right? Yes, sir. How did you, when you were in office, how, how did the AG's office watch the crisis, I assume it grew during the six years, not as a result of your being in office, but because it was just getting bigger and bigger. Uh, How did you deal with it during your six years, and what did you see happening? Well, actually, state AGs were ahead of the curve. It was me trying to push everyone else to follow. And that was a national issue, not just the state. So the state attorneys general were way ahead of the curve here. Understanding the need for treatment, the need for education. As attorney general, I actually started a program where I partnered with the Medical Association of Georgia, Georgia Prevention uh, Nonprofit, and I had uh, principally one young lady who was about 22, and we would go to high schools and we would talk to students on how easily it was to become addicted from this uh, type of medication and how it didn't discriminate. White people, black people, young, old, no socio-demographic, so easy to become addicted to the the opioids. So we were actually way ahead of it. I had good fortune in my home community because Vic Reynolds, the current GBI director, immediately agreed and got involved in the community. He was your sheriff up there. Vic Reynolds. He was the DA. A DA, rather. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, Additionally, there's a a lady, Missy, who started what's called the Discovery Zone, where for free folks could come. And then the county commission really kicked in because we had an old building that was doing nothing. They gave that space to Missy for her group. 
So there's a role for government. But but one of the biggest issues we had back then, which is thankfully changing now, is the availability and the cost of Narcan. Uh, that's a, a medicine. It's a nasal spray that reverses the effect of the opioid and saves lives. Well, for a while, you couldn't get it. For a while, it was cost prohibitive. Now you have a lot of police departments and fire departments that carry it in their vehicles. So if they get a call, they can immediately go to the scene. In fact, the, the federal government just announced this last month, uh, the FDA, that they've approved a generic version of Narcan, which will make it that much cheaper and more available to the public. Absolutely. One of the things that I thought was interesting about the decision by Marietta was that, and this was a comment from Frank Rotundo, who is the uh, uh, longtime executive director of the Georgia Association of Chiefs of Police, and I think a pretty respected guy Absolutely. in his field. I used to work with Frank when I was uh, a direct, a director of the uh, Southern Region of the Anti-Defamation League and saw how respected he was. He points out that, one of the, that not only are law enforcement shifting their focus toward intervention and prevention because it seems like a, a smarter approach to the problem, yet, but he also suggests that... Th- they have limited resources, that recruiting and retaining officers is becoming such a big problem that uh, you really can't afford to be off in the drug task force business uh, if you don't have enough men and women to deal with the problems at hand in your own community. Well, it's always a resource issue, right? Um, But at the end of the day, I mean, look, I think that the Marietta police are doing what they think is right for the community. I think they see a problem, and I think they've they've got a path forward, and I really applaud them for doing it. Let let me, while we're talking about this, and Jen, I'm going to turn to you first on this, because I will acknowledge that I'm a little confused about what this measure does. The governor has a bill on his desk that relates to allowing a broader circle of medical personnel who deal with hospice patients to be able to administer liquid morphine. Do I have that right? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. But it is somewhat controversial. Uh, The governor has not said whether he's going to sign it or not. His people haven't said, although we should say the governor's people have said, we don't want to talk ahead of time about what he is or isn't going to sign. Uh, in part because there are concerns about the fact that uh, medical personnel who get their hands on opioids have been known to uh, to use them themselves or uh, steal them and resell them. So the question is, should we be adding, making a wider circle of people, uh, giving them the use of this sort of drug? It's an odd measure and it's, but it is still it's somewhat controversial, Sam. Well, it's my understanding. I mean, Jen, you should take the lead here. Um, I believe there are numerous safeguards in that legislation. There, there are numerous safeguards, but I'll tell you kind of um, why, kind of what the the intent of it was. I mean, I think what we're dealing with and what we're seeing is a lack of healthcare professionals or personnel outside of really the metro Atlanta area in a lot of these rural areas. So we're even at a point now where it's not just hospice nurses. It's like we don't even have enough of them. And so we need to go down to that second level. But I'll say that there are a lot of controls in place. I mean, you have to have a doctor's order with indications, frequency, dosing, all of that. And so all of the controls that normally are in place for doctors or for nurses also will apply here. And it has to be a licensed hospice. And let's be clear with hospices, they are highly regulated because they get all of their money from the federal government, some from the state government, but the bulk of it from the federal government. Um, so they have to comply with a lot of um, reporting requirements and regulations. And so, you know, this is trying to deal with an issue that we found in rural Georgia in terms of the lack of health care personnel. And we'll see if there becomes a problem, then we'll have to come back and we'll have to deal with that. I agree with Jen. I think that the safeguards are clearly written in the bill. You can't look for perfect legislation. You have to look for legislation that makes a difference, and this has the potential to help. All right. Um, 
So, as I said, uh, the president's still speaking right now to close off this section of our conversation about opioids. Uh, and when we get a chance, we'll ask Robert Jimison to join us from the hotel where the president's speaking to give us a sense of what he had to say. Um, let's take a minute. Uh, the uh, The governor, Governor Kemp, went off on a started a tour today to mark his 100th day in office. He was out at Peachtree DeKalb Airport in DeKalb County, and uh, our Stephen Fowler was there. Here's just a little of what Kemp had to say when he talked to the crowd gathered there and to reporters about his first 100 days. We put Georgians first. We've done the things that I campaigned on, so people should not be surprised at our agenda. But a lot of those issues, like I said during the campaign, are things that a vast majority of Georgians believe in. A teacher's pay raise, keeping our kids safe when they're at school, you know, doing something about health care. Not just talking about doing it, but actually accomplishing something. I couldn't be more prouder of the legislature this year for the stance that they took on the Patients First Act. And that included bipartisan support in the House of Representatives. So I was very appreciative of that. I understand the politics behind health care, but there's some people in the General Assembly that put that behind and voted for that bill. And uh, we are working hard literally every single day to work on lowering insurance premiums and providing better access for hardworking Georgians. That's uh, Governor Campus. He uh, embarked on the first stage of what's going to be a tour that I, I think he's going to hit any number of cities across the state. So, Jen, as a, uh, you, you're the Democratic state senator in the room. Let me serve you up a really, really big, fat uh, softball. What do you think when you hear Governor Kemp talk about the, his accomplishments during his first hundred days? You know, there's a lot of bark. There's not a lot of bite. I mean, there's lots of of little sound bites and kind of Georgians first and this and that. But I'll tell you in terms of even with the Georgians First Act, for example, um, what he talks about accomplishing, all he accomplished was getting the ability to maybe do something that may or may not get approved by the federal government. So the whole idea that there was any real action associated with that um, he's really kind of selling a bill of goods. I mean, we'll kind of see what comes out of it. Um, and then in terms of insurance, you know, premiums trying to get them down. What they don't talk about is um, having these short-term insurance plans coming into the state that don't cover anything and that are cheap. So premiums are going to come down. But guess what? They don't cover pre-existing conditions. Um, they um, generally don't cover most of anything that most people would want, including pregnancy care. So this whole idea of, you know, we're going to get premiums down, we've done all this, um, we've really not been political when all they've done is been political, just it, it just doesn't just doesn't feel true. So let me. me look at a couple sides of that, Sam. Um, on one hand, uh, the when the governor talks about the Patients First Act, what he's talking about is he was able to get the legislature to give back to him control over uh, whether to expand Medicaid, for example. That used to be in the governor's purview. It, it, the, 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 uh, it was passed on to the legislature during the 2014 governor's race because Republicans were worried should Jason Carter win <laughs> the governor's seat, uh, he might go ahead and expand Medicaid on his own. So the governor took back power but we still don't know exactly what he's going to do with waivers for Medicaid or, for that matter, how he's going to work on supplementing co the costs uh, to get into the uh, Obamacare markets for people who are sort of marginally able to afford it. So is Jen correct that there hasn't been a lot of action? We're just waiting to see what might come next? No, I think it's a little harsh. I mean, by definition, first, the governor needed to have the authority. Uh, then you need to be able to write the plan and send it to uh, HHS. And as Jen said, you then need to, the federal government to approve it. Uh, so there needed to have been this process, and the governor starting it, and he's starting it on two waivers. The common thought was one, but it's actually two. And they have talked about the number of Georgians that would be the beneficiaries. Let's also acknowledge that uh, the Affordable Care Act is not affordable. Uh, there was actually three months this past year where uh, my son was in between jobs and my wife and I had to decide whether we were going to pay for his coverage on COBRA or whether he wasn't going to be insured because there was no longer a penalty. The cost of that coverage and the deductible was absurd. 
I mean, you're talking like $4,000 a month with like a $5,000 deductible. So yes, it gives you a free annual visit. Yes, it gives you uh, numerous things, but it's not affordable by any definition. I mean, if, if you have a $5,000, $6,000, $10,000 deductible, that's called bankruptcy if you ever get ill. Well, the thing in terms of the Affordable Care Act, COBRA is like that regardless, prior to the ACA and after. And you probably could have ter- looked into a short-term plan for your son. It's about $100 a month for catastrophic care. But We were good parents. <laughs> <laughs> but with respect to that, I mean, the thing that really... And, and I'll say this, the whole point of the Patients First Act was purportedly to give the governor back the ability to craft something um, that would help Georgians. But the problem is, is that the authority only went so far. And so instead of giving the governor the complete authority to determine what's best for people in this state, what's going to get the most care for the least cost, I mean, he crafted it in such a way that it only went up to 100% of the federal poverty line. And what we know is there has not been a single waiver granted by the federal government with respect to 100% of the FPL because it collapses on itself then. You can't do Medicaid expansion that way. It's 138%, I think, is the figure that has been used for uh, waivers in other states. Have I got that right? In order to get the 9-10 match. And so with respect to that, we know that you know, past his prologue with respect to if this is going to happen or not, and then we're going to have to start all over. So it's one of these things where it sounds good, but at the end of the day, you get down to the nut and not much has been done. And I think that we're going to be revisiting this issue again and again. And to come back to the opioid crisis, part of the reason we have such issues is because we haven't expanded Medicaid. I mean, what we know is that in states that have expanded Medicaid, treatment for opioid abuse, substance abuse, mental health issues is there for folks and has actually helped with respect to the crisis that we find ourselves in. You know, we have a Congress for a reason. Some of us actually work, actually wish it would function. Yes, I agree. (laughs) Congress created the Affordable Care Act. Congress has to deal with the intended and unintended consequences of the Affordable Care Act. Everyone just yelling at each other on both sides of the aisle is not helping our country, and it's certainly not helping our citizens with regard to health care. So I think this is really, at the end of the day, one of those issues where once the federal government created a system, the federal government has to solve the system. But with respect to going back to the Georgians, the Patients First Act, look, Kemp should have taken the full authority. Well, keep in mind the Democratic Party told them up front, we won't support anything you do until it's a full 100 percent expansion. No, but but the deal is, it was just, if, if he would have come in and said, just give me the authority to craft what I think is best, right? I could have been on board for that. But when you go ahead and set the expectation for what I know is going to be failure, it's going to cost twice as much and cover half as many people. There's just no way to get behind that. We're not going to solve this problem no, today. We're not? not today. No. Well, then let's take a break. I'll tell you what, why don't we get a break in? Uh, Jen, I'm interested in the fact that uh, when I said I was going to serve you up a big, fat softball, I thought you probably would talk about the governor uh, signing soon, we imagine, HB 481. And I want to talk to you about that in a few minutes. Did you? I, want to... I thought the softball was to talk about the forthcoming Senate race. We could talk about that as well. This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. (laughs) Thanks for listening to GPB during our Stealth Drive, when you're getting more of the programs you come to GPB for and less fundraising. Here's a great way to support GPB and enjoy Georgia's beautiful state parks at the same time. With your support at $15 a month, we'll thank you with a Friends of Georgia State Parks membership. You'll receive one annual park pass good at Georgia State Parks, a free night of camping, discounted greens fees at Georgia State Park golf courses, discounted admission at historic sites, and several other benefits. We have a limited number of these Friends of Georgia State Parks memberships to offer with your support of GPB, and when they're gone, they're gone. So don't wait. Donate online at gpb.org now or call 800-222-4788. 
and thanks. Jen Jordan, you made a name for yourself in this past session for a number of reasons. Um, Certainly people here in Georgia, particularly those who agreed with you about uh, HB 481, the uh, heartbeat abortion bill, uh, you became something of a hero to that movement. And then you went off and testified in Congress on the issue of abortion as they are looking at more restrictions on abortion. You so you've you've suddenly uh, established a pretty big reputation in the state of Georgia, but I've got to imagine it feels a little odd because it's around an issue that you feel is really detrimental. You believe is really a bad uh, idea for the people of Georgia. You know, it's been incredibly difficult. I mean, look, two things that I said I never really wanted to talk about as an elected official was abortion and guns. And I feel like that may be the only two things I've talked about since getting elected. And part of it is because I feel like we're not having real conversations um, in terms of what people's real life circumstances are and what the effects of kind of political um, notches in one belt have on the people of the state. And specifically, you know, when we talk about Medicaid and Medicaid expansion, I mean, that goes to maternal mortality rates, too. I mean, part of the issue is we're not providing care to the women, especially outside of Metro Atlanta and, and, and in certain urban areas. And what does that do when they get pregnant? They're not getting prenatal care. You have obstetric emergencies because there's not an obstetrician within an hour of you or a labor and delivery unit within two hours of you. And then we have all these outcomes where not only does mama die, but the baby dies as well. So when we talk about life and the culture of life and really wanting to make sure that mothers and babies are taken care of, what we really need to be talking about is, you know, education, contraception, you know, financial stability, and then also care. And by what we've seen in terms of the restrictions that are put in place with respect to abortions in this state and in others, the tighter the restriction becomes, OBs leave the state. Obstetricians leave the state. And I think we've seen that in Georgia. Since we put into effect the 20-week ban, we've seen the maternal mortality rate in this state double, if not triple. 50% of our counties don't have an OBGYN. That's what we need to be focused on. We shouldn't be focused on thinking that we need to be first in line to get in front of the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. If we were truly governing and truly not trying just to make political points for the next election, we would be looking at that and trying to provide care. So, Sam, all that said, there's no question at all that the governor is going to sign HB 481 and it will become uh, it will be go into effect as the law in Georgia. But there's not much chance it will, in fact, take practical effect because there will be immediate uh, uh, court cases that will demand that it be stayed until it goes up through the courts. Right. Well, it won't take effect because the ACLU has already stated they'll sue for injunctive relief prior to that date, which I presume is July 1. Uh, And then from there, uh, along with about five or six other states, you're going to have a series of cases that make its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, And I think uh, pundits can argue uh, numerous ways on this issue, but I think the answer is... Come back in two or three years, and we'll know the answer. What, oh, you mean because it'll take that long for this to go up through the courts and get yeah, to, I, I to eventually th- the Supreme Court? Yeah, I don't think the U.S. Supreme Court is, frankly, uh, jumping to have this issue. But you're in all likelihood going to have conflicting circuit court opinions. Yeah, yeah. And at the point on an issue like this that you have conflicting circuit court opinions, there may not be an option but for the U.S. Supreme Court to take it up. And I think that's the point. I think that's why you've had so many state legislators do this, because I believe it was either 2015 or 2016 that the Supreme Court refused to take up um, a fetal heartbeat bill there, um, saying that they were going to let the district court decision stay in place, which basically struck it down as unconstitutional. I think that kind of some radical groups on the right 
believe that the more states that they have pushing, that it's going to put the Supreme Court in an untenable position where they have to hear it. But this is the problem. We keep talking about, well, two or three years, and it really isn't going to have an impact. The problem is that this bill not only criminalizes physicians, obstetricians, but also women. But let's go back to the obstetricians, okay? So if I'm an obstetrician or I'm someone training to be an OBGYN, I'm not going to want to live in this state knowing that the possibility that this law goes into place. Um, And then secondarily, what about our medical schools and residency programs? Part of the training to become an obstetrician are the surgical procedures that include abortion. Are we going to get to the point where we're not even going to have accredited programs or appropriate licensure for OBGYNs in the state when we're also at a critical um, place in terms of our our maternal health? You know, I mean, that's just it. It's like, oh, it's just going to get stopped by the court, so it's not that big of a deal. That's what I keep hearing from folks. And I'm like, but people start to do their lives around what they think may happen. And with this kind of law on the books, it is it is just incredibly detrimental. So to the if state. I may, let me turn to the political side of this for a couple minutes. Sam, uh, as a longtime Republican official, as someone who ran as a Republican uh, for, for a number of years, uh, is this once this is signed into law and it really hits home for people across the state that this is now a law, is it going to have an, the negative impact on Republicans that many people think it will in terms of women voters, in terms of younger voters? What's your sense of that? I expect it will. Uh, I expect the legislature will be more Democrat uh, following uh, next November's election. But I also think that some of the points made by Jen uh, disregard current problems with regard to our state's health care system. When less than half of the doctors will take Medicaid now, expanding the number of patients that can receive Medicaid does nothing for those patients if they don't have a doctor to see them. And the the dollars that doctors are paid are often lost leaders, except there's no lead. But see, but but that's a little... That's a little kind of misleading because at the end of the day, the state of Georgia is what sets the reimbursement rates for Medicaid. And with Medicaid expansion, that's the whole point, that you have more money coming in so you can actually get those reimbursement rates up so that you'll have physicians that will actually take these patients and see them. I'd love to see the economic analysis that says at the time you add hundreds of thousands of new patients and when you have a federal match that a state is able to handle that increase. I I think that's wishful thinking at that point. And I agree with Jen totally that we're totally inadequate with regard to our medical care and the number of physicians. The state legislature did increase, once again, the number of uh, residencies, et cetera. You know, candidly, I would just be more creative. I would sit there and tell a young doctor, if you go to rural Georgia, up to X dollars, you're not paying a dime in Georgia income tax. Absolutely. Something like that. We'll forgive loans, do whatever we can to try to get care to the folks that need it most. I mean, because that's also an economic issue, too. Businesses don't come to places where there aren't physicians or hospitals or a thriving community. I mean, that's just it. We're not understanding that all of this is so interconnected. No, I I certainly agree with you. It's interconnected. I, I certainly wish the state would spend more money uh, to encourage physicians to go to rural areas of the state. I'm always remember, you know, reminded of my friend who created Doc Hollywood, who's right at, at Grady Hospital. Yeah. And uh, by, by definition, we need these young, bright minds going throughout our state and providing uh, the health care that our citizens Wait. demand and deserve. What's it? Neil... Neil Shulman. Neil Shulman, who wrote the, the book that ended that up That Alzheimer's being, uh, uh, medicine's working for me today. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Uh, so, Jen, I said a minute ago, let's talk about it from a political point of view for a minute here. You did get a lot of attention. You have had the spotlight on you. And as if we don't have enough suspense in terms of what Stacey Abrams is going to do, uh, you know, whether Teresa Tomlinson will, in fact, go beyond an exploratory committee or what else. Uh, there are people who've suggested that you ought to be looking at uh, running in a statewide race of one kind or another. Does this give you uh, any thoughts about doing that sort of thing? You know, it does. I mean, to be quite frank, um, I think, A, you never say never, right? But also, I think that there is a real 
critical need right now for people who are willing to do the work and have the real conversations um, and reach across party lines, too. I mean, 481 shows me that we have a wide divide in terms of, you know, not only the politics, but the facts that people are operating under. And we have to start talking about things that matter. I mean, that's why I was so personal with respect to when I went to the well, because I wanted people who didn't have that experience, i.e. men, to understand this isn't just about abortion. This isn't just about, you know, pro-life, pro-choice. This is really about the autonomy of women and making decisions for themselves and their bodies. Oh, I have to tell you, I'd be interested in your response to this because I didn't know what to say. We got a note from one of our listeners the other day who said, all I ever hear on your show is the conversation about how 481 will affect women. What about men? What does it mean to men? And I didn't have a clue as to how to answer that question. Well, it will in terms of men will now be responsible for um, under the child support. Uh, the personhood stuff with, aspect. Right. The yeah. personhood aspect is something that is not getting talked about enough and has opened a real door here. Um, because I, re- I was listening to some, some folks say, well, you know, we used to have to go to um, states or have people go to, to New York or whatever if they wanted to get an abortion. I said, well, I don't, I don't think you can do that under this statute because really under this statute, it believes that the embryo is is akin to my living, breathing 14-year-old and, son. And isn't there, right? is there a provision in this bill that allows district attorneys to follow a woman beyond state law? Do I remember that that was part of the conversation? I think it's just to get records and stuff. Oh, but, okay. But at the end of the day, if you look at it that way, that it's akin to my... 14-year-old son, if I took my 14-year-old son across state lines and killed him, there would be a major problem when I got back to the state. I mean, so we're not talking well, about... It would actually be a major of, problem in the state that you took him to. <laughs> across the board, right? And so that's what we're dealing with in terms of, you know, we've we, somebody came up with this great idea, we're going to push this to the Supreme Court, but the real-life implications um, for women, and not only that, but then how do you even administer you know, the tax or the income tax deduction um, in the state for miscarriages. And then what are the proof problems? And then even in terms of criminal due process and notice, it says once a heartbeat is detectable, it doesn't say what kind of device a doctor has to use. The one that can detect, you know, embryonic activity at 5.5 weeks is a transvaginal ultrasound, which is only available in areas that are more affluent. All right. So let me go back, if I can, to the you. You are thinking maybe there's a next step for you politically, but it's getting late to start declaring for 2020, isn't it? You never know. <laughs> so you, so uh, I'll, I'll try and get Jen maybe a little bit off of this question. Um, there's another name that you haven't mentioned. Who's that? That would be the lady who was the lieutenant governor uh, candidate. Uh, yeah. For the Democratic Party, and she yeah. overtly Sa- is yes. making calls. Yes. Well, I mean, yes, yeah, Sarah uh, Amico, Amico is, is. And, and I'm not getting in a judging contest, et cetera. But by definition, she's very active, I understand, uh, to include talks with the um, Stacey Abrams campaign. Yeah, but I think area. everybody's talking to Stacey Abrams if they're thinking about getting into another into a race, a right. statewide no, race. I'm, right? I'm talking more about Stacey's staff. Oh, oh, I see. Bringing staff on. All right. Well, maybe you and Jen should talk later. and she, Maybe you have some intelligence she needs to hear. The more the merrier, right? <laughs> um, I want to talk about the, this announcement that we got on Monday morning. I said on the show the other day that our good friend Eric Tannenblatt spent the weekend uh, tweeting like crazy that, uh, that there was a new candidate, a woman, uh, she could self-fund at least a part of her campaign. She was going to be a very big contender in the 7th District uh, Republican primary contest. And on Monday morning, we learned that it is Lynn Homrick. She was a vice president for the Home Depot and then went off and founded a nonprofit that prepares, according to the uh, description she gives of it, prepares women for leadership roles. And I got to tell you, Sam... Um, she put out a video. We played a little piece of it on the show on Monday. 
boy, uh, maybe she's going to be a pretty tough contender because the pushback has been, <clears throat> excuse me, really intense from both Democrats and Republicans. Well, you know, if, if there's one thing that, that folks should have learned in the last four years is um, the public isn't looking to see how many politicians they can vote for again. So when you start attacking an outsider because they haven't been active in the system before, which is what has happened on at least one side of that aisle, that's a losing argument. Because, uh, you know, this isn't a great time for incumbents or longtime politicians to run for the same office or new office. So I, th- I think it's been interesting. I mean, clearly on the Democratic side, and Jen could disagree with me, um, you know, clearly they're going to have numerous folks that are in that primary, numerous folks fighting for the opportunity, thinking that they have an edge because the last election was so close. But for those on the Republican side of the aisle, there is no such thing as an easy race for congressperson. So I, I think they're fooling themselves if there aren't potentially other names that still come out on both sides of the aisle. And I think the race is far from known as to who will be in it and who may be the eventual new congressperson. We, we suspect that Renee Unterman, your colleague in the state Senate, plans to jump into the Republican primary up there. And if we need any more proof, we'd have to look no further than Unterman now saying that she calls Homrick a that buckhead lady and suggest she might not be able to find her way to Gwinnett County. Now, I don't know where Homerick lives, but uh, Unterman certainly seems ready to take her on, uh, Jen. Well, it's it's not <laughs> nice to talk badly about Buckhead. Um, I will say... <laughs> I, I, I will say that Ms. Homerick is actually a constituent of mine and lives in the 6th Senate District um, and doesn't live in the 7th Congressional District. So she's kind of taken that whole outsider um, label to the next level <laughs> because she actually lives outside of the district. I mean, that's that's really interesting branding with respect to that. But um, how are Republicans? Who, yeah, how remember are, that name. How are Republicans gonna, who spent the entire campaign between Ossoff and Handel complaining that he wasn't didn't live in the district in the deal with Lynn Homrick? This is going to be interesting to watch. There's plenty of time for her to move in the district. Okay, all right. Um, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show in. And um, Robert Jimison is standing by. But I also, Joe, we know that tomorrow Joe Biden, Uncle Joe, is going to put out a video announcing his candidacy for president. But I think that leads us into an interesting conversation with the time we have left about a new Harvard study of young people's attitudes and what that might tell us about a candidate like, oh, a 76-year-old Joe Biden. We'll be right back. Time is running out for your chance to support GPB and receive tickets to see best-selling author David Sedaris before they go on sale to the public. David Sedaris will be at Atlanta's Fox Theater on November 20th and the Classic Center in Athens on December 4th. With your credit card contribution of $300, select a pair of tickets for either show and join us for GPB's pre-show reception. Donate now at 800-222-4788 or gpb.org. On the next Fresh Air, psychiatry's search to understand the biological basis of mental illness. We talk with Harvard professor Anne Harrington about her new book, Mind Fixers, about how that search led to new classes of drugs. But she says pharmaceutical companies are leaving the psychiatric field, and we're at a turning point in how we treat mental illness. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. We're back on uh, Political Rewind. Hey, let's go to Robert Jimison for a minute. Just a minute. Robert, you were there to see President Trump in person. Are you still a few feet off the ground from the experience? <laughs> I am. I am. I'm still at the, uh, the hotel down at the Hyatt, and people are just abuzz all over the place. Yeah. What, what did you uh, take from the president's remarks today? What were just a couple of points he was making about the opioid crisis today and how he wants to work to, to uh, do as much as he can to fix it? Well, he, he touted, you know, the, gov- the, the administration has laid out several, you know, different initiatives. The drug take back program, which is coming up on its third year, that'll be on Saturday. Um, and he laid out, you know, a lot of the successes that they've had with the amount of drugs that they seized. He talked about a new um, partnership with President Xi Jinping in China 
um, to help stop the flow of fentanyl, which really has been the biggest for Georgia, has been one of the biggest, most deadly drugs to come into the state. And so he's working with the Chinese government to stop the flow of fentanyl that mostly comes from China. Um, but the president, in, in key President Trump fashion, he, he didn't stay on topic too much. I mean, he was all, all over the place talking about, you know, religion to the, the border. I mean, the border was a huge topic, of course. Um, and then he also talked about the, the drug dogs at the border. He went on for a good three or four minutes talking about how amazing the dogs were that, that, that sniffed vehicles and packages at the, at the southern border checkpoints. I would have thought the president would have stuck with his teleprompter at a conference like this. It's interesting that he went off, as you say. But it also sounds like, unless you have some other examples, that maybe his improvisations at least related to some extent to the subject at hand. Yes? Well, they they started to. And then he started talking about how drug companies, you know, are, are giving European European people, uh, European countries, cheaper drug prices than Americans, and he said it's a it's a rigged system. And he followed that up with, and I know about rigged systems. I think you know what I'm talking about. I had the system rigged against me. Right. Um, and afterwards, yeah. he said that'll be your soundbite for the rest of the day. But who, you know, he was. Go ahead. Who were some of the people there that uh, uh, we should know were there to see him? Um, so Governor Kemp met him at the airport with um, First Lady Marty Kemp. Um, Representative Drew Ferguson was there along with the uh, Lieutenant Governor. And also um, Chris Carr was there. Attorney General Chris Carr met them at the airport with the um, arrival motorcade as well. All right, uh, Robert, we're glad you were there. I think you're going to be filing a report on the president for All Things Considered uh, this evening and for Morning Edition tomorrow. But thanks for joining us. Hurry back. We miss you on the show. <laughs> Absolutely. It's Robert Jimison reporting from the site of the president's speech to the uh, conference on opioids. Um, Brian Robinson sending you and me texts, Jen Jordan, in the middle of the show saying, I want to do the show with Jen Jordan. I think we'd be good together. Maybe we'll make that happen, Sam. Oh, don't don't give in to his jealousy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so Biden tomorrow will jump into the race. We know that he's going to put out a video announcing his candidacy. And interestingly, Jen, it comes right in the aftermath of a study by Harvard. 3,000 young people, uh, their attitudes about everything from politics to religion and uh, much more. But but let's for the minute, since we're talking about a 76-year-old candidate for the presidency uh, announcing tomorrow, let's just talk about a couple of the highlights. And let me read them, tick them off fairly quickly. Here's what's positive for Democrats. Two-thirds say they're likely to take a Democratic ballot in the presidential contest. 20%, only 20%, think the country's headed in the right direction. Only 7% like the president's approach to climate change. Only 11% approve of his handling of health care issues, 5% like how Trump is handling race relations. But on the other side of this, um, only 18% say elected officials who are members of the baby boom generation care about people like that. And only 22% say baby boomer voters care about them. Uh, so, Jen... You know, we talk all the time about uh, various constituencies, uh, often about women, African-Americans. There are some good news and bad news for Democrats in terms of the presidential candidate. If Joe Biden is or Bernie Sanders are going to be the leaders of the ticket, even as the Trump folks have some negative news in this as well. Yeah, I mean, what was interesting to me is that Bernie had 29 percent overall. Um, and then Biden had 18 percent. Now, granted, they were the top two, but they're also two of the people that are with the highest name recognition. And, and, and it's an identity that people know. And so the fact that Bernie Sanders, who was considered to be kind of the, the darling for a lot of millennials or younger voters, is only at 29 percent indicates that they're looking for something else right now. And and I don't think that it's somebody in their 70s, um, you know, to go after Donald Trump. Yeah. Sam? You know, I think all these numbers are frankly irrelevant until the Democratic Party has a nominee. And everyone gets excited in the political world. But, you know, talk to me after the uh, the, the first seven to ten uh, primaries and caucuses next year. Um, I, I have a hard time picturing uh, Joe Biden getting the nomination. I have an easier time 
picturing him giving Trump a tough re-election. Yeah. But yeah. I don't see him coming close to acquiring the nomination. Well, let me look. Uh, the AJC looked at these figures, too, and they went further and broke down some figures about voters in Georgia. And they looked at the census data, which just census data about voting in the midterm election, and they found something pretty interesting. Uh, they found that 36 percent of uh, people between the ages of 18 and 29 voted in last year's midterm elections. That's nationally. That's 16 percent percentage points higher than 2014 when turnout was 20 percent. So there's been a big increase in um, interest among younger voters. And here in Georgia, the AJC's researchers found that the 18 to 24-year-old age range showed the same level of voting activity as the rest of the nation, which means something like more than a third of young voters were uh, going out to the polls here in Georgia. Um, it, it sounds like the future... I understand what Sam's saying about presidential contests, Jen, but in statewide contests, if we're suddenly seeing more young people turn out and voting Democratic, uh, it sounds like the future of young people is in the hands of Democrats. Well, I, I hope so. Um, <laughs> you know, I was really interested because this was a midterm, right? And so especially younger voters, I mean, A, they... We tend to think they don't vote, but they definitely don't vote in midterms. And so this is, is really compelling um, in terms of the numbers. And it makes me feel better because, look, I think that's part of what the problem has been for so long is that people have not been civically engaged. Um, they don't know necessarily how to make their government work for them. And when they do, they they want to throw you know the bums out and and. And, and I get that. So this is actually really good information. And it, whether you're a Democrat or Republican or an independent, you know, we want more people voting, not less. You're, uh, we're running short on time, but you were looking at the crosstabs and there was at least one or two uh, 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 crosstabs that really interested you. Well, a couple was that it looked like it was almost a majority of uh, participants that self-identified as living in the South. And so if you're already... You know, what we see is the Democrats kind of have a leg up in this, um, you know, polling. And then the fact that so many of them lived in the South, again, made my heart, you know, <laughs> go pitter-patter you know, a little bit. If, if you show me Bernie or Elizabeth Warren as the nominee, I'll show you an easy re-election for our president. Uh, Sam, you have a couple of young people living in your house uh, or who have lived in your household. They're now off on their own. They're voters. Are they Democrats? No, they're apathetic, <laughs> which I think is the majority. Well, that's the question. The question is, how do we get people to understand that part of, of, of making this country great, if you're unhappy, is that you actually have to be keyed in. You have they, to be on a jury. You have to pay taxes. You have to be responsible that all of us are here as part of a social compact and that we just can't sit back and let oh, somebody they, other They voted. Tribe. They just didn't like either choice. Ah, okay. And I think that very well may be the same thing in two years. Well, we may have some Olins on the ballot soon enough, right? No, I don't think so. <laughs> That's, all right. We're out of time for uh, today's show, completely out of time. Uh, Senator Jen Jordan, Sam Olins, what a pleasure to have you both on the show today. Um, we'll be back again on Friday with a new show. You can watch us or listen to us on Friday at 2 o'clock as usual. And then that show will be on TV Sunday morning at 9 a.m. on GPB-TV. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. See you Friday. <laughs>